My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. Identifying and studying senescent cells is pretty hard. Really, you have to do tissue biopsies to identify senescent cells in tissues. So because of that, there just hasn't been the amount of research on things that would be in that hermetic category for how they impact senescence. But intuitively, because these stressors are known to be a big part of this premature cellular senescence or stress-induced senescence, my guess is that a lot of the things that we're trying to protect ourselves from by being biohackers and integrating these hormetic habits into our lifestyles would help at least slow down the accumulation of senescent cells. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. It's no secret that red stuff is good for you. It's good for your blood particularly. It's weird. It's one of those like nature signature things like blueberries and which aren't really red. They're kind of more like dark blue, but pomegranates, cranberries, all sorts of the uh, like the dark red raspberries, beets, acai, you know, all of these are really, really good for the blood, but they're also good for acting as cardioprotective foods, very good for the heart, very good for blood flow and increasing exercise endurance, providing a source of nitrate, which supports circulation and endothelial function, even sexual function. It's hard to figure out which ones to consume and when. And that's where this stuff called red juice fits in. So red juice has all of the different best berries in it, all from organic sources, which is important because berries have a lot of pesticides and herbicides on them. And then they add a clinical dose of cordyceps. It's made by this company called Organifi. So Organifi put together this superfood berry blend. People hear berries and superfoods and think sugar and carbs sometimes, but it's only got two grams of sugar, 13 different superfoods in this berry superfood drink. 100% USDA certified organic, which is unheard of with big berry compounds like this. And uh, they actually partner with vitamin angels as well to work to prevent illness and blindness and vitamin deficiency for innocent children suffering across the globe when you get any purchase of Organifi Red Juice. It's healthier than coffee, no crash, great afternoon booster, great for smoothies. I even use it as a meat rub. This stuff's amazing. No caffeine in it as well. It just supports energy with natural herbs and medicinal mushrooms and antioxidants. USDA organic certified gluten-free, glyphosate residue-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, non-GMO, 100% organic whole food, and you get 20% off. How? You go to Organifi.com slash Ben. That's Organifi with an I dot com slash Ben to get 20% off of anything from Organifi. All right. If you're taking supplements, but not taking a probiotic, you're probably overlooking your gut. And that obviously affects your entire body's health, which is why adding a probiotic, and this is crucial, some kind of prebiotic that feeds that probiotic to your daily routine can be a real game changer for your health. Now, this is where this stuff called seed comes in, S-E-E-D. It seeds your gut. See what they did there? So it turns out a lot of what we think about probiotics is wrong. Like fermented foods and beverages, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, they don't actually contain adequate amounts of probiotics. Kind of a myth. Scientifically speaking, most fermented foods and beverages actually don't qualify. That's not to say you shouldn't eat or drink them. It's just that they're not a reliable source of a dense amount of beneficial and effective bacteria, otherwise known as a probiotic. So this stuff that I supplement 
a diet that I do eat that is rich in fermented foods with is called DS01 Daily Symbiotic. I know that's a mouthful or a gutful in this case. It's got 24 clinically and scientifically studied probiotic strains that actually support your gut health. In other words, easy poops. And that in turn supports your entire body's health. Now, this stuff's super unique. They developed this delivery technology called the Viacap. It's a capsule and capsule design that safeguards the probiotics through inhospitable conditions like your stomach acid, enzymes, bile salts, then delivers the strains 100% alive and well to the end of your small intestine, then into your colon, where you get all the digestive health benefits. But they also take care of the planet. You get a refillable glass jar, compostable bio-based pouches, ecological paper made from algae that would otherwise damage fragile marine ecosystems, and green cell foam made from corn that you can literally watch dissolve in water when this arrives at your house. You could practically like eat their packaging. So Seed has a lot of cool things going on for it. Now, uh, you can go to seed.com slash Ben and use code Ben15 to get 15% off your first month of Seed's Daily Symbiotic. That's S-E-E-D dot com slash Ben and use code Ben15. I do red light. I just got done doing it like 10 minutes ago. It's amazing. Full body red light. Sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening, sometimes both. But the science behind red light therapy for supporting thyroid function, for supporting testosterone production, for supporting collagen, elastin, boosting cellular energy via triggering the mitochondria, healing damaged cells that have been under oxidative stress, helping with sore muscles, helping your joints to bounce back faster and get back in the gym faster. Red light does this and so much more. But not all red lights are created equal. The one that I use has undergone third-party testing. It has safety marks from nationally recognized testing laboratories. It's made from only the highest quality materials, including medical-grade components. And it is, in my opinion, the best of the best and gives you the highest dose in the shortest period of time. It's called Juve, J-O-O-V-V. I use their Elite. It allows me to treat my entire body in like 20 minutes, front and back. They also have Juve Go, which you can take on the go. Any of the Juves, you get a steep discount on how? Go to juve.com slash Ben. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Ben to pick up a juve today. J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Ben. Quality, true medical grade, safety testing, and results from this stuff. Juve.com slash Ben. All right. So it's no secret that everybody, at least most people I know, kind of want to slow down the signs of aging, but a lot of people are not going about it the right way because they aren't actually paying attention to what's called senescence, cellular senescence. Now, uh, senescent cells, as my guest on today's podcast is going to fill you in on in, in great nitty gritty detail, are these cells that can accumulate in the body and accelerate aging. You get more of them as you get older. There are ways to get rid of them, so-called senolytics. And uh, that's actually uh, what my guest, Dr. Gregory Kelly, kind of specializes in. Like, how do you clean up these senescent cells? How are they a problem in the first place? What do you do about them? And how do you ultimately live longer? and have better health span and lifespan based on what you do. Now, Greg is not only a naturopathic physician, he also develops products for Neurohacker Collective. Uh, that, that's a company that actually makes a uh, like a nootropic smart drug kind of formula that I really like. I even wrote a book called Shapeshift, 
shapeshift. And uh, he studies nootropics, anti-aging, regenerative medicine, weight management, chronobiology, which is kind of like circadian rhythm type of stuff. He has more than 30 different journal articles indexed on PubMed. He's published various articles on various aspects of natural medicine and nutrition. And so he's a wealth of knowledge. He's never been on the show before. So we'll see how this goes. You never know with first-time guests. But anyways, everything that you hear is going to be at bengreenfieldlife.com slash senolytic. I know that's hard to spell, so let me spell it for you. S-E-N-O-L-Y-T-I-C. bengreenfieldlife.com slash senolytic is where you can grab the show notes. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Are you ready to talk about these so-called zombie cells? I am. Really excited today to share this with you and your audience. Yeah. Does that annoy you, by the way, when people call senescent cells zombie cells? Because it's like everything in the body has a reason. And this this is really something I want to ask you anyway. It's not like senescence is totally bad, right? No, no. There's um, like most things, that, and you'd be well aware of this, context matters. So we'll get into a deep dive on that. But to answer your question, no. Um, I think zombies is a good analogy for senescent cells, especially but we'll really talk about the, the subtype of them that accumulates as we get older. Um, and the reason is twofold. There are cells that haven't died and can turn other cells into senescent cells. So, you know, very akin to what you'd see in zombies in a movie or a book. Okay. So basically, they, they can be like cells that are almost dead, like a zombie, not quite dead, and wreaking havoc in the human body, to use the highly scientific terminology. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So I think it's, it's why I think it's the most widespread metaphor. At Neurohacker Collective, we tend to go more for a gardening analogy and yellowing leaves and being a gardener and pruning senescent cells away. But it would still have some analogies. A gardener, as an example, with leaves yellowing on a plant, you know, there's a couple different issues that causes. One, you know, they can be a source to spread, you know, disease now to other more vibrant leaves. They use up resources, and while they're there, you can't promote new growth. So in a sense, senescent cells would do those things in our tissues as well. And so you know, I generally use that gardening, yellowing leaves analogy instead yeah. of zombies, but they're both very appropriate. Yeah, I guess it just depends if you're a green thumb person or, or a movie freak. The idea with the cell senescence is that these cells, from what I understand, they stop dividing, right? Like cellular senescence is just like the cessation of cell division. And I, I know that there's a lot of stuff that can cause the cells to stop dividing, you know, like uh, stress and oxidation and environmental toxins and things like that. But it, it kind of begs the question, like, why would the body have this built-in mechanism in the first place? And the, the reason I ask that is where my mind goes, you know, unhampered cellular division, with no brakes on it would technically be something that we kind of call cancer, right? Like, like this, this, this full on growth of cells with no brakes whatsoever. And so would, would cell senescence be built in as a mechanism in the body to keep us from getting cancer or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely thought of as a stress response program. So I guess going back in time, the origin of the idea of what's now known as cellular senescence goes back to um, Hayflick in 1961. So before his work, there was this thought that if you put cells in a culture, and as long as you gave them you know, enough food and created a hospitable culture environment, they would just be immortal. They would grow forever. And what Hayflick found is that human cells, and they were fibroblasts that he used in that study, divided about 50 times before they essentially hit a wall. It wouldn't divide any 
further. So that's now known as the Hayflick limit. Okay. And that introduced this idea of cellular senescence, this idea that cells can get to a point with certain amounts of divisions where they'll just frankly say, like, I'm done. I'm not going to divide anymore and make any new cells. What then, like, leaping forward to the 70s, the idea of telomeres or telomeres, depending on, I, I guess, the pronunciation, one's more British, one's more North American, were identified and became eventually known that it was the shortening of telomeres over time as cells copy themselves that would cause this uh, running into the Hayflick limit. And okay. kind of one of the other things about the Hayflick limit, it varies organism to organism, probably also even in humans, tissue to tissue. So that, that idea we could call replicative senescence. And my guess is that's at most really minor importance in aging, right? We like fundamentally, even older people don't run out of the ability to create new cells and to okay. you know, have cells proliferate. But because of this kind of clock with telomere attrition, you know, ticking down, shortening, 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 there became this idea that senescent cells, like that mechanism, replicative of senescence, was probably a pretty prominent part of aging. You know, and so now we're, going, we're back in well pre-2010. And what um, eventually they, I guess, early on thought is, okay, well, these cells are, you know, so I guess telomere attrition, in a simple sense, would subject DNA to potential damage if it's copied. So it, it, the cells enact this program called a, a DNA damage response, right? So that the general idea was, okay, this makes sense. We shouldn't copy these cells if we might be copying damaged DNA because that could promote cancerous cells. Right. So this idea that senescent cells or cellular senescence was an anti-cancer mechanism was fairly early on in the senescence thing. Now, as times evolved, and especially more recently, it, it's really nuanced. And so I, I, this is going to be way oversimplified, but just so we don't get too bogged down, when cells are precancerous, enacting the cellular senescence program is probably beneficial in terms of you know, preventing cells from going towards um, a damaged cell that could just copy itself over and over and over, become cancerous. But once cancers develop, especially in older organisms, solution essence is probably a net negative. Okay. So again, like context. Okay, so so would that mean, because this is something I'm, I've been thinking about a little bit when it comes to senescence, it's kind of like the idea with protein, right? Like we don't necessarily want, especially later on in life, to excessively stimulate uh, mTOR, for example, or excessively cause anything that would that would result in pro-growth functions that might potentially cause cancer. And, and I'm not saying that older individuals can't benefit from like growth hormone precursors or or peptides that simulate growth hormone releases or, you know, amino acids and forms of protein and enzymes that break down protein that allow them to better assimilate those amino acids. But at the end of the day, it appears that longevity is assisted with some amount of of kind of like uh, like slowing down this pro growth effect, yet at a younger age, when fertility and muscle and you know a, a lot of things related to performance and replication of the human species should be prioritized, then we would actually want to really be engaged in a lot of pro growth activities that might accelerate aging later on in life. So that being said. Let's say, and, and I know we'll get into these so-called senolytics that can kind of get rid of senescent cells later on in our chat, but if you're young, should you be thinking twice about trying to shut down senescence so that you're able to grow and be fertile and everything? 
what I would generally bucket senescence into, so I mentioned there's the replicative senescence, the Hayflix limit. But depending on what causes a cell to become senescent, basically to execute this software program, the cell will have really almost different structure and function. So like several other areas where senescence is, you know, like at least in the right amount good, one would be embryogenesis. So, you know, the development in utero. Another would be placental aging. So there's at least some research that suggests that senescence in the placenta and this would be, I guess, somewhat controversial, but would be involved in the age of, of placental aging. But for sure, in these animal experiments, you know, it has to do with triggering labor. So pregnancy, as an example, would be a time period where, in general, I'm a believer in the precautionary principle. If something's not known to be safe in something like pregnancy, then you just wouldn't do it. But so senolytics, I would say, would be something during pregnancy, you know, no reason to take down potential downsides because some senescent cells are definitely doing a few useful things during that time period. Wound healing would be another area where senescent cells are known to play a role. But even in that, it's, it's more of a timing issue. So in both the embryogenesis and in wound healing, think of it as like a wave of senescent cells come in early on to do something good. So the senescent cells post, you know, say like you just ran a marathon, that's quite a bit of muscular trauma inflammation caused from that, there would be some need to repair and regenerate. So there'll be a wave of senescent cells that'll sweep in. They help um, attract macrophages, other aspects of the immune system to do the repair and regeneration. And a week later, they've been cleaned up either by going through a falling off process called apoptosis or by the immune system coming in and scavenging up, gobbling up any remaining senescent cells. What would be problematic is if if that wave came and didn't recede and the senescent cells lingered, then instead of helping the tissue repair and heal itself, it would actually hinder that. Okay. Right. So that because of that, I tend to use this idea of there's transient senescent cells, mostly beneficial, have a role doing a job, and then there's lingering ones, which are most of the times causing issues. Okay. So what it sounds to me like in a nutshell is that for the most part, senescent cells are going to cause damage to the body and accelerate the onset of chronic disease due to the inflammation. And and you, there may be some other things that they're causing that, that I'd love to hear in terms of what type of damage a senescent cell is actually causing. But at the same time, if you are pregnant, if you are potentially like trying to, to heal a wound, I don't know, like maybe you're a burn victim or something like that if you have a, an existing tumor and maybe if you're, you're trying to repair a whole bunch of muscle damage, like, I don't know, maybe if you're a bodybuilder or something, then taking senolytics could potentially not be a good idea. But if you don't fall into those categories from a longevity or anti-aging standpoint, having some form of a senolytic strategy could be a good idea. I think that's fair. That, and that's how I would bucket it. But even for, say for the bodybuilder, periodic senescence or senolytic senescent clearance strategies might be advantageous. Maybe not in the couple of days after something that you, you know, really put a lot of trauma on the muscles, but intermittently I think would be potentially prudent. A lot of the studies that I've seen, particularly on, on pharmaceuticals for getting rid of senescent cells actually do, you know, cause, cause you just mentioned not doing it all the time. It seems that they have like these pulses, like a few times during the year that you would take senolytics, but it's not like something you would use every day. Is that correct? Yeah. And the way I think of it, um, 
have you you've had Walter Longo on your show before? No, no, he he's the uh, the fasting mimicking diet guy, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was on uh, he was on our collective insights at one point. So the fasting mimicking diet, just to give context, is something meant to replicate short periods of fasting. So his original research going back to mice, I believe he would fast mice completely for two or three days. And some of the changes that he noticed would be it would promote autophagy, which is a different than senescence, different than apoptosis, but another cellular response program. Um, and it would also tend to selectively get rid of cells that were stressed, like senescent cells. Particularly, I believe he was measuring senescent immune cells, um, like macrophages. And so he created that fasting-mimicking diet as a way to get the upside of short periods of fasting without some of the downside. Because at the time, I think he was doing a lot of research with cancer patients, and it was hard for some of them to even do a you know, three-day water fast. So when I think of Senolytics, especially in the sense of Qualia Senolytic, the product that Neurohackle Collective created, these are things that are essentially mimicking short periods of fasting is how I would say they work based just mechanistically. And so because of that, you know, just like you wouldn't want to go on a water fast every day for the rest of your life, doing senolytic compounds, generally speaking, is also something that's short periods like bursts to just mimic a signal and then you know, let that signal take its, its role in the body, turning on and off genes causing certain cells that are less important, like, you know, potentially senescent cells to then go through this falling off process. Okay. Did, did you see the study? And I'm, I'm sure as somebody who's, who's looked into senescent cells, you probably did on, uh, I, I think it was desanitib. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly with quercetin as like this one, two combo stack. At least that's the one that I've seen talked about a lot in the anti-aging and, and longevity circles as, kind of like what was the gold standard based on research to limit senescence? What do you think about that? So the idea of senolytic was coined by Mayo Clinic and Scripps Institute of Aging researchers in 2015. And the original like stack that they identified was, um, I would say dasatinib, but I'm not sure that that's the correct pronunciation either, and quercetin. And that combination was interesting because, I guess, stepping back, senescent cells are a category of things that all have in common this idea that they won't divide any longer. Um, they also have some other characteristics in common, but many of the other characteristics, especially when you start to think structurally and functionally, can vary. So when we talk about like that, I would say developmental senescence, embryogenesis placenta, those cells will have actually slightly different markers on them than these zombie cells we're talking about with aging, as an example. So just like going back, so the insight for the um, Scripps and Mayo researchers was that what we wanted to do was induce these cells to go through apoptosis, which literally translates as falling off in the sense that leaves or fruit falling off of a plant. So apoptosis is a Greek word. And the idea was, okay, let's find things that mechanistically may shift the balance in cells from resisting going through that process to in favor of that. And so they identified several different candidates, eventually found that desatinib was really useful, as an example, in their original research in adipose tissues, fat cells, to get some senescent fat cells to complete this journey to falling off. Quercetin wasn't active in that, but was active in bone marrow, 
and in, I think it was endothelial cells in that research. And the combination was active in places that each individually wasn't. So that created that stack, which is by far the most researched combination. I think fisetin or sometimes pronounced fisetin would be, you know, second, but not quite really even a close second. Yeah. That D- I just would say DNQ, the DNQ stack is by far the most used right now. Somebody gave me the DNQ stack. They gave me uh, a few days supply if I wanted to try it to to clear senescent cells. I didn't take it. I looked into it. And, and for me as an athlete, I was a little bit concerned about this because apparently it can lower your blood cell count. And then the other side effect is uh, diarrhea uh, along with the anemia. And I don't know if that's common or if that's, you know, just just um, something you don't need to worry about with low dosages or standard dosages or something like that. But uh, are you familiar with, with side effects of that stuff? The satinib would be, it's it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. That's the category of drug it's in. And it's used particularly for blood cancers. And definitely in that context, like a lot of anti-cancer drugs, can have fairly significant side effects. So one of the I guess, again, the original idea from the researchers at Mayo and Scripps was, all right, well, dysatinib may not be a great thing to have people take every day. You know, maybe if you need to pulse it more frequently for cancer treatment, that's one thing. But like, let's see if we can shift this risk-reward profile in a way that we get you know, like a much better um, risk-reward ratio. And so right from the get-go, they had this idea, well, let's do what they called hit-and-run dosing. So instead of doing you know, something every day, every day, let's just do this intermittently. Let's give the DNQ stack for a couple days, give a window of time to recover for it, and then do another cycle. So that idea of hit-and-run dosing was almost built in from the beginning as a way to take something that would otherwise not be a great thing to do in terms of at least the side effect profile, Dysatinib, and let's figure out a way to do it in a, a, something that at least seems more prudent. And so even in, with natural compounds like Visitin as an example, I, I believe all of the studies, well, let, let me say, the last time I looked at clinicaltrials.gov for studies that were registered on Visitin as a senolytic, all of them were following some type of an intermittent dosing protocol. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, that seems to be the case with a lot of these, these senolytic agents, whether the, the pharmaceuticals or the natural agents. Now, an, another couple of things that I've seen pop up for controlling senescent cells are two other kind of darlings of the anti-aging or longevity community, metformin and rapamycin. Have you looked into those at all as a senolytic? Sometimes what you'll see in the cellular senescence community is this idea of Senotherapeutics. So think of senolytics as one leg under the, the broader senotherapeutic category. Two other legs, one would be called senomorphics, sometimes also called senostatic or um, senostatics. And the third leg of the stool would be the immune system. The idea of that middle leg, the senomorphics, is are there things we can do that would protect cells that are near these things from becoming zombies? So you know, rapamycin would, I think, classically be thought of as more xenomorphic than xenolytic, if that makes sense. It's something that, I mean, it, it impacts, obviously, the mTOR pathway, which is very important in, like, senescent cell signaling as well. Like, a, a big part of a cell choosing to become senescent or, you know, go from senescent to that falling off process has to do with nutrient sensing in the environment. So I guess getting back to your question, the general idea would be, or I would categorize rapamycin more as a xenomorphic, something that's helping essentially toughen up 
cells near senescent cells to make sure they don't also become senescent. Metformin I've seen less on, and I would, again, put it more in that xenomorphic area, again, mostly because of what it's doing with nutrient signaling, but probably more on the, the glucose side than on the protein side, like mTOR would be more amino acid signaling. Okay, so based on this idea of either uh, senolytic agents that would kill off senescent cells or senomorphic agents that would kind of like transform the environment the senescent cells are in, are there things other than say like over-the-counters or pharmaceuticals or nutrients that would limit senescence? I mean, you mentioned fasting, so I assume that would fall under the category, but what about a, a lot of other strategies that could exist out there? Like, I don't know, cold therapy or, or sauna or light therapy or, or anything like that. Have any of those type of strategies been studied? Very few of them. We can jump into a couple that have, but I guess, you know, first maybe we want to set kind of the, the backdrop. So, you know, we talked about telomere shortening, hay flick limit, basically replicative senescence. But shortly, well, relatively shortly after, you know, that was identified, what they also found in these cell cultures is that lots of things could cause premature senescence. Basically, you know, too much oxygen, too little oxygen, not enough nutrients, too much nutrients, ionizing radiation. So, all of these things collectively tend to be pigeonholed in this idea of premature stress-induced senescence. And my guess is that most of what we're talking about when we think of cellular senescence and aging has nothing to do with this hay limit. It's these stress-induced premature senescence that cells are going through long before they've run out of the ability to divide. So with that backdrop, the way I like loosely think of then how would a cell respond to stress, I, I bucket into a couple um, areas. So the, the first thing would it's going to be upregulate antioxidant defenses, create a you know fitter mitochondrial network, basically toughen itself up, make itself more resilient. And you know, if, if stress is more than it can adapt to, then it will damage some things, like maybe some mitochondria some other things inside a cell, like you know, typically proteins, right? So then what it will run is autophagy, which is a cleanup stress program. It's, all right, let's recycle some of these damaged proteins and organelles and reuse those components to make better versions. And if stress is then more than, you know, could be dealt with something like with DNA repair, autophagy, that's when cellular senescence would get activated. It's like, okay, there's enough damage that let's just freeze things where they were so we can sort it out, but not so much damage that it's tripped it into apoptosis. Basically, the cell is like, okay, like damage is so much, let's just get rid of this cell. And then if damage is even more than that, that's when um, necrosis, I'm sure you're familiar with that idea, right? Like apoptosis would be a cellular stress program. Like it's very controlled when necrosis is basically trauma just caused the cell to die accidentally. And, and so there's that continuum. So when I think of things, getting back to what you asked about, cold therapy as an example, or some of these other things we do to build stress resilience, my intuition is those things on the continuum are gonna make cells in that first category, right? Like we've made our cells fitter much more capable of dealing with a wide range of other stresses, right? We've done something hormetic. And some of those things may you know, help get rid of at least senescent cells in certain tissues, but that's far less known. And in part, it's because identifying and studying senescent cells is pretty hard. They're like, really, you have to do tissue biopsies. 
to, to identify senescent cells and tissues. So because of that, there just hasn't been the amount of research on things that would be in that hermetic category for how they impact senescence. But intuitively, because these stressors are known to be a big part of this premature cellular senescence or stress-induced senescence, my guess is that a lot of the things that we're trying to protect ourselves from by being biohackers and integrating these hermetic habits into our lifestyles would help at least slow down the accumulation of senescent cells. Let's talk CBD. I use it. I use it especially at night. I sometimes double up on it when I travel. It's hard to find the good stuff, the stuff that actually works not only to manage inflammation and pain, but also to help you sleep like a baby. I go full spectrum and not only do I go full spectrum, but I go with CBD that's like small batch, super high quality, harvested from these very specialty farms in Kentucky. It's made by Element Health. I've been using this CBD since 2018, total game changer for me with sleep, with recovery. Their full spectrum CBD is by far the most potent stuff on the market. It's all handcrafted on family farms. The quality is second to none. They got a gummy also, which is amazing. I pop two of those gummies and I'm out like a light within about 30 minutes. They also have their maximum strength bottle, which is holy cow. It works like one dropper full and I'm out, even on like a plane flight, whopping 4,800 milligrams of full spectrum CBD, insanely powerful stuff. And so if, if you're looking for CBD that actually works, that's powerful, that's clean, that comes in either, like I mentioned, a super tasty gummy or an oil. They even make like a, like a not a vaporizable formula. It's like a smokable formula, almost like CBD joints. This company has it all figured out. My buddy Adam Wungar runs it. He's been on the podcast before. Really smart dude. So here's how you get 15% off of any of the Element Health CBD products. Go to elementhealthsupply.com slash Ben and use code Ben15. That gets you 15% off. Elementhealthsupply.com forward slash Ben and use code Ben15. I'll get you 15% off. So enjoy. Uh, folks, you can now go to boundlessparentingbook.com and get yourself a brand new copy of my brand new parenting manual. You're going to love it. Your parenting journey or the parenting journey of whoever you get this for, teacher, educator, grandparent, aunt, uncle, you name it, is never going to be the same. It's an anthology, a really thorough anthology of vulnerable and radical and inspiring parenting advice from superstar parents, many of whom I've seen raise amazing children. Naveen Jain, Katie Wells, Dr. Maya Shatrit, Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena, all the way down to the controversial Liver King Brian Johnson guy. They're all featured in there. The weird, the cool the amazing things they do with their families and their children, you get to read about and learn from. There's entrepreneurs, billionaires, single moms and dads, pastors, education experts, legacy builders, wealth managers, and other earth-shaking parents. Huge variety of them. You get all their tips, all their tactics, all their tools, all their wisdom, and the book is now available. You go to boundlessparentingbook.com to get a copy. That's boundlessparentingbook.com. This book is the parenting blueprint, and it's amazing, if I don't say so myself. I'm, I'm pretty proud of this thing. It's big. It's beautiful. It's lovely. You're going to love it. All right. This is cool. You can join Team Ben Greenfield Life. We're currently hiring. You can check out our careers page at bengreenfieldlife.com slash careers. We got an editorial position available. It's the editorial assistant for Ben Greenfield Life. You get to assist with and execute the full editorial strategy. That means things like blog, email, social media, copywriting, 
collaborate across different departments on all the written content, ensure that we have timely and appropriate development and delivery of digital content that conforms to editorial style, because I can't do that on my own. Lord knows all I can do is write. I'm horrible at managing the rest of it. I need an editorial assistant, so we're hiring one. BenGreenfieldLife.com slash careers is where you can apply. We have a very creative and inspirational network and team. We live to empower people to live their bold, purpose-filled, and adventurous life with help, hope, happiness, and love. And our team is amazing and super fun, super fun to work with. So check it out. Go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash careers if you think you got the chops for this new editorial assistant position. So there's no lab assays that you could get that would measure your rate or volume of cellular senescence. You would literally have to do like a like a biopsy? Yeah, and you'd have to do it in pretty much every tissue because, so like as an example, that going back to that original DNQ study, you know, there was bone marrow they looked at, and endothelial cells they looked at, adipose tissue they looked at, and dasatinib, you know, was active with the adipose tissues, not with the other ones, of course, and vice versa. So, so yeah, there's no simple assay. So what, you know, like a Buck Institute is one of the leading researchers in cellular senescence and senolytics. What they would typically do, even in a cell culture, there's no one thing they can look at in that culture and say, okay, you know, this is a senescent cell and this isn't. Now, senescent cells to a trained eye might look slightly different. So they you know, could potentially you know, visu- visibly see a, a difference in some, but what they'll usually look for is an enzyme called beta-galactosidase that senescent cells tend to give off that enzyme, but it's not 100% sensitive for senescent cells. So they'll stain cells for that. I believe if they turn blue with the right stain, that's a marker that, oh, this enzyme's, you know, disproportionately in this um, cell. But then they'll look for other markers like um, P16 is a good one, which is a, a protein that some cells give off. So if cells are positive for P16, they're much more likely to be a senescent cell. So fundamentally, what the scientists would do is they would look for cells that have a grouping of characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well based on the fact that you see a high secretion of like pro-inflammatory cytokines and higher levels of inflammation with senescence, you could probably at least do like, you know, because it'd be pretty easy to get a, a blood inflammation analysis of levels of, you know, homocysteine and fibrinogen and CRP and a host of other inflammatory markers. And that might give you a clue at least that you might have a, a, a high rate of cellular senescence. Yeah. Correct. There's um there's a lab in Atlanta called Genfinity that has a, a, a blood panel, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the um, beta-galactosidase. They're also looking for these inflammatory cytokine markers in the blood. Last time that I talked with the founder there, they were also looking at NAD. Um, the idea being because inflammation tends to gobble up a lot of NAD, that NAD might be an indirect way of, you know, guessing as whether, you know, there's a big burden of senescent cells and tissues throughout the body. Okay. So, so do you think that if someone were taking NAD, that would be one good anti-cellular senescent strategy? Yeah, I think to, at least to some extent, NAD or NAD boosters would be, again, thought of as being in that xenomorphic category, things that, you know, if the cell doesn't have enough NAD, then, so mitochondrial dysfunction, as an example, would be one of the things known to cause premature cellular senescence. So things that support healthy mitochondria and NAD would be in that category would tend to make a cell, again, fitter so that it can resist, resist stress 
and not execute this senescent cell program. Okay, got it. Now, there are there are a wide variety of compounds that I see that, that you've looked into in the senolytic formulation you guys have been working on. You actually sent me some, I think it was like two months ago, it came in this little white box, and the instructions were just to take the pills. I forget how many there were. It wasn't a small number. How many pills were there? Yeah, a daily dose is six capsules. Yeah, so you take six capsules on day one, six capsules on day two, and then you're just kind of done. And so I, I tried that. Uh, I just did one. I, from what I understand, the protocol is you're supposed to do two days out of the month every month. Yeah. Yes, that's our general recommendation. We've done two small pilot studies where we had people do it more frequently than that. So we did three cycles over the course of about a month. So two days on, twelve days off. Two days on, twelve days off. So that's the most frequent that I would, you know, have anyone do it. And the most, I guess. I guess slowest amount I would recommend would be to do the two days once a quarter. But our general recommendation and what we use ourselves is the once a month, two days. And have you been getting results back from people in terms of anything like heart rate variability or telomere length or, you know, these DNA methylation clocks or anything like that? Telomere length, I wouldn't expect to have anything to do with Again, that's that hay flick limit, a very different type of what's that replicative senescence. So I don't, I don't think that would be you know, a useful marker. Um, I've talked to Ryan Smith at True Age, some people at Clock Foundation that, that do the Grim Age uh, epigenetic test using DNA methylation, and then you know, some people in the longevity community. But the consensus is that DNA methylation is just not a useful way to measure senescent cells because senescent cells just don't exhibit the same types of DNA methylation patterns. So what we've opted for is to tend to look much more at subjective things. So like as an example, because it's so hard to directly measure senescent cells short of taking biopsies, some of the pharma companies that are developing their own senolytic, um, in this case, drug candidates, have tried to figure out ways to look at things. So again, what you suggested, inflammatory markers in the blood is one that is in some studies, but several studies have looked at, um, do you know the Womack scale? Is that a scale you've ever run across in research? No, tell me about it. So Womack is, um, I think it's Wisconsin, Ontario, I can't remember the rest of it, but it's basically an osteoarthritis scale. Like a pain scale? Yeah, pain, activities of daily living, you know, so, you know, ease of getting in and out of cars, going up and stairs, things like that, um, as well as some areas of flexibility. So that's widely used in anything to do with joint pain. So, you know, you'll find studies of glucosamine that use the Womack scale and the same with, you know, lots of medications. So several of the senolytic studies registered on clinicaltrials.gov use that and then recruit people with some degree of osteoarthritis. So, you know, that idea of subjective, is this making a, a difference in your ability to do activities of daily living, has been fairly common just as a default thing since there's no great easy blood marker for it. And so what we tend to focus on, especially because in the supplement world, as you would well know, so we're really limited in terms of what types of claims we can make, to structure function, right? So we have to avoid things, you know, that would be preventing treating disease. So what we at Neurohacker Collective do is we'll recruit people and then we'll have them do some type of validated questionnaire that looks at things that would be more the positive characteristics of healthier aging. Like, are you better able to perform activities of daily living after a few cycles of quality senolytic? And we've seen positive results in that. 
We've seen positive results in areas of energy, emotional well-being, stress in general. And then individually, I think senescence cells can impact different people quite differently. That's definitely true in research. And part of the reason they think so would be this idea of a threshold effect. So below a certain amount of senescent cells in tissue, other mechanisms may accommodate enough, right? So that we're not subjectively or objectively experiencing the negative effect of the growing amount of the equivalent of yellow leaves in that tissue. But once we cross that threshold, then they're much more problematic. And so that also makes you know, it very individual how it's experienced because, I mean, I'll be 61 next month, but I'm a, like, at least I feel like I'm a pretty healthy 61, right? I'm not limited. I don't have things consistent with inflammation. So how I might experience it might be vastly different than someone that's, you know, my age 60 and that's much more limited. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to get into some of the ingredients that you have in this senolytic formula because I hadn't seen some of these before. And a lot of them, like a lot of compounds that you'll find in supplements, they have their special brand name and then the actual ingredient is revealed later. But one that leapt out to me right off the bat, obviously, was this thing called Senactive. Because I think you have what, like like maybe uh, was like 10 or so ingredients in this formula? 10 if you count that as two. Okay. Um, so, and it would be fair to do that because it's, it's a brand ingredient, but it has two compounds in it. One is um, notoginseng, which is used very prominently in Chinese traditional medicine. And then a um, sweet rose chestnut extract would be the other part of Synactive. Okay. So what, what do those do? So Synactive is um, the company that has made and studied Synactive has done about 10 studies on it, some in vitro, some in animals, and some in humans. But the human ones have focused on exercise. So the Synactive has, originally was positioned as something to take acutely before exercise to help recovery. What they then found is that, and I guess stepping back, so, you know, I mentioned stress of all types can cause some senescent cells, you know, you and I talked about earlier that senescent cells, the, the transient ones, also play a role in wound healing, things like that, repair, regeneration. So one of the things with intense exercise is that we'll naturally create some senescent cells. Because of that, the company that makes Synactive at one point decided, well, let's just look post-exercise in people that have taken Synactive or a placebo to see how quickly the senescent cells that are made are cleared. And what they found is that they were cleared much more efficiently in people that took Synactive. So you have this on one side, this ingredient that's positioned as exercise, recovery, better performance. Um, and then one of its mechanisms just turned out it helped get rid of senescent cells in muscle tissues. And one of the reasons I think that's super important with age is Sometimes it's called anabolic resistance, but think of the like akin to insulin resistance. As we get older, muscles become much more resistant to the same things that would stimulate much better growth in a 20-year-old, um, as an example, exercise, but also like protein intake. And so one of the studies I think that was really cool, and I've seen an, another group replicate it, is that this anabolic resistance in old mice. So what they did in this particular study is they had young mice, old mice, had both intense exercise, looked for senescent cells after. And within, I think it was seven days, in the young mice, all the senescent cells had been cleared out. They, they did their job and they were gone. But in the old mice, two weeks later, there was still a bunch lingering. And in that particular study, they gave the D&Q stack to the old mice and it got rid of that. 
and help rejuvenate the muscle tissues. So everything from fibers to hypertrophy. I think one of the big challenges with aging is we're all going to have this anabolic resistance. And so things that might support our muscle in getting rid of lingering senescent cells to me makes just a lot of sense, hence synactive. Okay, so synactive is basically ginseng and sweet chestnut rose, two different things used in traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah, and specifically noto ginseng, noto which is ginseng. in the Panax family, but different than Panax ginseng. Okay, got it. Now, you mentioned that something like the ginseng could be useful for staving off sarcopenia or muscle loss. If if I were to take your senolytic ingredient, is there a proper timing? Like, should I go work out after I take it on those two days out of the month? Should I prioritize getting a good strength training session? You'd also mentioned that some strategies like fasting might pair well with senolytic agents. So should I instead fast and go easy? Or is there like a gold standard activity level that someone should have on the two days that they take this stuff? So I wouldn't pretend to know that. I, I can just have you know my intuitions and things I've self-experimented with and know some other people. But getting to Synactive specifically, they've done that acutely before intense exercise. So I don't think that matters. Personally, if I was you know, had done intense exercise a few days later, maybe after a week, um, would be when I would time the senolytic. But just to make it easy on myself, I know I do it the first weekend of every month. It's just easier to, you know, put it in my protocol at that point. In terms of then stacking other behaviors, I do know some people that have done it on days that they're doing maybe their monthly, um, as an example, fasting behavior where they're doing a water fast or something more akin to the fasting mimicking diet. I've done that too. Um, I've done it on you know times where I don't do that, and I don't think anyone really knows. You know, is there and to what degree there might be advantages of stacking things or timing things differently. And so, what I tend to go back to is is Longo's work, the fasting mimicking diet person. So one of the things that he reported pretty early on, and again, this was before he would have come up with what became known, known as the fasting mimicking diet, but just had animals that were water fasting for a few days. And his lab was very focused on cancer and autoimmunity, but some of the cancer studies would have then found that, okay, you do this short fasting for a couple days. And what that does, again, promote autophagy, he almost described it as for healthy cells, it would almost be like putting a shield around them, right? It would make them more stress resilient. But for cells that were already maybe on the tipping point of, you know, I'm senescent, should I or shouldn't I go through this falling off process, it would tip them into apoptosis. The same with, you know, more damaged cells even than senescent cells. And so then the aftermath of that in the recovery, one, you would make regrow fitter cells, but to the unhealthy cells, so in that case, the cancer cells, were much more susceptible to the chemotherapy than they would have been before doing this short fasting window. So when I tend to think of the qualiocenolytic, I personally think of it as something that's more mimicking this idea of a short fast. And this is a complete guess. So one of the pathways that things like fisetin, quercetin, luteolin that are in qualiocenolytic are known to impact is the um, PI3K, AKT, mTOR pathway. So it's a nutrient signaling pathway. And there's also like an mTOR direct through amino acids. But this pathway, my intuition, and I could be so wrong on this, but evolutionarily, when would your guess be that we would have consumed potentially a lot of things like fisetin, quercetin, you know, much more than in a normal diet. 
well, thinking seasonally, I don't know, during like the spring and summer? That's probably true, right? Because these things are pretty widespread in the plant kingdom. But quercetin is actually named after um, oak trees. Quercus is the oak genus. And white onions would be another area that quercetin is you know, well known to be in relatively high amounts. But in something like onions, it aggregates at basically the things we throw away when we you know, tend to cook with onions, right? The skins, you know, the, the bottom part, you know, the, the stems, that type of thing. Same with fisetin, right? Like fisetin would tend to aggregate much more in outer parts of plants, leaves, things like that. So I was reading recently about the Dutch famine from World War II. And one of the things it mentioned in that was that because of that, you know, people were eating, you know, tree bark, leaves, grass, like those are classically famine foods that no one would choose to eat, but they're used to, you know, during famines to get something. And so my guess is that, you know, these things like fisetin, quercetin, so again, quercetin would also be in bark of trees as an example, is that they're sending almost a famine message when we really drastically increase the amount in our diet, like we would in the amounts that are used as senolytics, and then causing this nutrient signaling pathway, this um, PI3K, KT, mTOR, to basically say, okay, the, the environment is really bad. I need to like prioritize getting rid of cells that aren't that important. And senescent cells are the things most sacrificed. Interesting. Okay, so you have you have physetin and quercetin both in in this senolytic, and you mentioned one other uh, polyphenol like compound. What was it? Luteolin. Luteolin. So luteolin, and, and all of them have in common that they're really yellow. So one thing um, people notice if they um, take quality the capsules are transparent, and they're this really like pretty light yellow color. And physetin, yeah. quercetin, luteolin, they were all they're all very yellow pigments. Yeah. Yeah, when I interviewed Dr. Mercola at one point, he was telling me about this so-called autophagy tea that he'll drink at night. And he has a few different compounds in there, including one special uh, form of tea bark called Powdiarco, which is a precursor to NAD. But then he mentioned how he actually has a lot of these. I, I think it was quercetin and, and physetin were included in there as something that he takes in the evening to enhance autophagy. So these are acting on multiple mechanisms of aging, including like that fasting mimicking type of strategy that you were talking about earlier, you also list along with the quercetin, the physetin, and the luteolin that you have in the compound, soybean seed extracts. Now, now a lot of people in the health sector are, of course, concerned about soy. They think it might give them, you know, man boobs or cause excess estrogen or something like that. But but fill me in on why you would include soybean seed extracts in there and whether or not that could be concerning for some people. The extract we use is standardized for soy isoflavones. And in a single dose, it would be about twice the daily dose that someone following, say, a Japanese diet would normally get. And the reason we have soy isoflavones in there, uh, uh, milk thistle as well, goes back to really think almost mechanisms. So originally when the Mayo Clinic and Scripps were trying to figure out what compounds might cause cells to, that were senescent to go through this falling off process, they looked through the research and, and said, okay, well, these are candidates. Like they look mechanistically, like they'll act on, again, maybe that that pathway I just mentioned, the PI3K, AKT, mTOR, right? So that you have your physetin, luteolin, quercetin that, that act on that pathway. But then they also looked at other pathways, um, tyrosine kinases, specifically SRC3, 
kinase, um, another grouping called efferins. And those things also can prompt a cell to go from deciding to linger to choosing to go through this um, apoptosis pathway. And so what we did was on the NeuroHacker Collective Science team side was something very similar. We were like, okay, are there compounds that aren't being used as senolytics, but that do some of these same mechanisms that would be complementary with things like quercetin and fisetin, and, and hence the soy isoflavones and the milk thistle. And for people that are concerned about, you know, the man boobs, soy isoflavones, again, it's just two days a month. So one, I think it's way over exaggerated that these things, especially in dietary amounts, are problematic. But, you know, it's, again, part of the idea of quasi-senolytic is we're just doing this two days a month. So, you know, for someone concerned about taking soy isoflavones consistently in the diet, that would be, you know, a, a very different concern than just taking a dose of them twice a month. Okay, got it. And you list those, you kind of like chunk your ingredients into three categories, adaptogens, polyphenols, and herbal tonics. We just covered the polyphenols, the fisetin, the kerosetin, the soybean seed extract, and the luteolin as four things that have been studied as senolytic agents. And then for adaptogens, that senactive, that ginseng that we talked about earlier, that falls into that category. What other adaptogens are you including? Well, I think we categorize the piperlongum extract into that bucket as well. So piperlongum is a really interesting plant. My background, when I, before becoming a naturopathic doctor, I did a master's degree in Southeast Asian studies. So specifically Thailand was my area of expertise. And my degree, I focused a lot on medical and nutritional anthropology. Um, and the Thai traditional medical system borrows heavily from Ayurveda because when Buddhism came from India to Thailand, they brought Ayurveda with it as well. And one of the classic trilogies of ing like ingredient stacks in Ayurveda, but also in Thai tradition medicine, is the combination of ginger with black pepper and with long pepper. And now some of the role would maybe be, you know, we would think of those things as bioenhancers, things that make other things work a bit better. But long pepper of those three is the one that's, you know, least known in you know, like the U.S. as an example, but widely used in Ayurveda as something that would be a rasayana. So what do you call it, a ra rasayana? Yeah. So it's akin to how we think of adaptogens, but it would more translate as a rejuvenator. And one of the interesting things about Piper Longum is one, it's gonna, it tastes a lot like you know, black pepper. I mean, it, the seeds can be almost used interchangeably, except long pepper is even more pungent and the reason is because it has something called piperlongamine that's not found in black pepper. And it turns out that piperlongamine is also senolytic, it, but in different tissues than where quercetin and fisetin have been shown to be senolytic at this point. Um, it's been in um, things like, as an example, intervertebral discs, joints, things like that, where it's much more active. That's interesting. I didn't know there was a difference between bioparine and piperlongamine because a lot of times you'll see biopairing combined with things like turmeric or, or curcumin to enhance the absorption. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is piperlongamine could do the same thing, but it's also potentially a, a senolytic compound. Yeah. So biopairing, um, piperine is the generic word for that. So long pepper, like black pepper and some other piper species would also have the biopairing type of molecule of piperine. Piperlongamine would be a different alkaloid and distinctive to the piperlongum plant, um, and maybe not a bioenhancer, but doing you know completely different things. So it looks like it helps again that idea of xenomorphic, toughen up cells so that 
you know, they wouldn't become zombified by nearby neighbors, but also it's senolytic in different ways than some of these other compounds and in potentially different tissues. What form of turmeric or curcumin are you using? So we use a branded turmeric called Longvita. And um, Longvita is interesting. So one of the challenges with a lot of these compounds is bioavailability, right? Polyphenols just in general, you could say have low bioavailability. One of the things that can help increase them is when more are given together, they tend to sneak more past the gut and the liver that way. But another is when, you know, specific compounds or are made to be more bioavailable. So um, neuroscientists at one point, and I think it was at UCLA, but it was one of the California studies, created Longvita curcumin as a, a way to be a more bioavailable curcumin. And specifically, they, in their original research, targeted the brain and cognitive performance. So we opted for that in part, like Neurohacker Collective, we love things that have been studied in the brain. But Longvita is, you know, they, I think, branded as the cognitive curcumin of choice and optimized turmeric. But it's, it's one of the more bioavailable forms of curcumin. Speaking of the brain, do you use that in your other qualia product, the qualia mind or any of your, like your nootropics? In the original, we call it um, OG qualia or two-step, which I know you took back in the day. We used um, curcumin in that, but I think that was Mariva, if I recall correctly, that we were using at that okay. point, which is another really good one. But Mariva is the one that's com- typically combined with the bioperi, right, to, as the way to increase its absorption and bioavailability. The advantage of Longvita is you don't need to you know, do the bioenhancer with it. Okay. And then you've got the the uh, the other category. You have the polyphenols. Then you have the ones that we just talked about. Are those the adaptogens? Yep. Okay. And then what's what's the last category that you have, like olive leaf extract and milk thistle and stuff like that? I don't remember how we categorize it. I think we like tonic herbs. Again, those are interesting. You know, so olive leaf as an example. And I know you're a big fan of olive oil. I've heard you mention that on your podcast and seen it in blogs multiple times. So olive is really cool because it has these unique polyphenols. The leaf tends to have more of one fruit, a bit more of another. You know, the oil is going to have both in in some amounts. But the the one that's specifically in the leaves in a higher proportion has, again, shown senolytic potential in tissues where some of these other polyphenols were not active. So I tend to go back to that original dasatinib and quercetin study where it's important to support multiple tissues with potentially different compounds that have senolytic activity in a broader base of compounds if we want to target, you know, health in more different tissues. You know, that's the reason that the olive leaf is in there. By the way, related to the olive leaf, just real quick, it reminds me of like Rudolf Steiner's whole, I think it's called anthroposophy or anthroposophy, where he talks about how when you're consuming plants, particularly, if you can get the root, the leaf and the fruit, you're going to get different components that target different parts of the body. Like the organs, I think, might correspond to the roots and the leaves to the appendages and the fruits to the the reproductive organs or something like that. But basically, what you're saying is if I'm consuming, let's say, extra virgin olive oil, I'm getting a lot of the fruit component of the olive tree. But if I were to take olive leaf extract, I'm going to get a different profile of polyphenols and some of the things I wouldn't be getting from the extra virgin olive oil. Correct. You'd get much more um, oleoropine, I'm probably mispronouncing it, is in much higher amounts in the leaves and much lower amounts in the fruits and the oil. So you'd still get some, but a much lower dose than would trigger these nutrient sensing pathways to, to kind of do this short-term fasting mimicking 
fight to get a senolytic activity. Okay, got it. I also noticed that you have uh, milk thistle in there. Milk thistle is something you'll find in a lot of like hangover remedies and you know liver detoxification remedies. But why'd you include it in a in a senolytic formula? Yeah, so milk thistle. I mean, I think it's in European traditional herbal medicine has been used for you know since going back to the Romans as a liver tonic. But again, we included it largely for the same reason we picked something like the soy isoflavones, the, the soy bean seed extract. Um, and it's because it does things in these. So I guess going back to like the idea of, you know, why does a cell stay senescent, right? Why wouldn't it after it's you know frozen? And then, like I said, in you know, wound healing, post-exercise in a young person, you know, within a week, these things have been cleared out, right? So why hasn't you know, some subset of these cells been removed. And one of the frameworks I've seen, at least in one review article, was think in terms of removable and non-removable senescent cells. It's the non-removable ones that are problematic as we age, right? The removable ones did their job and now they've disappeared. So, you know, what makes these cells non-removable? And part of it is their ability to resist this falling off process, resist apoptosis. And they do that with a combination of things, right? Like there's incredible redundancy built into physiology. So one of the things, are, they're often described as pro-apoptotic and anti-apoptotic proteins. Pro-apoptotic and anti-apoptotic. Yeah, and it's a family called the BCL2 Bax family. And at any given point in time, there's, you know, we cells would have both expressed. It's the relative amounts that would choose the cell's fate, like, you know, should I proceed through this journey to falling off or, you know, am I healthy enough, right? So you have those proteins and then you have, you know, signaling pathways like, the, you know, like we've talked about that can tip the balance and say, okay, the environment looks like it's, you know, more famine, nutrient signaling, cascade, shift towards this pro-apoptotic. And then you have other pathways that also influence, right? Like these, I had mentioned tyrosine kinases. So one of the things that milk thistle does is mechanistically it works on a subfamily of tyrosine kinases that are important in shifting the balance towards saying okay like weighing things out you know it looks more like a famine let's go through apoptosis okay but in a different way than quercetin or fisetin or some of these things in a way maybe more analogous to what dasatinib would do right it's not really a dasatinib mimic right it's a you know really healthy liver tonic herb but mechanistically, it would be doing something more akin to what that does than what the polyphenols are doing. Okay, that makes sense. So, so with, with this whole range of ingredients that are targeting multiple pathways of limiting or clearing senescent cell accumulation, you guys at, at Neurohacker, I've noticed you kind of tend to have like a shotgun approach. Like you'll take all the stuff that's good for the brain and acts as a nootropic and put it in quality of mind and just put it all together as, as one you know mighty capsule or whatever. Same thing with this senolytic formula. Do you guys ever get called out on the fact that, well, nobody's ever proven that all this stuff put together might not interact with each other in some deleterious way or something like that? Yeah, so I think that's fair. And it's one of the reasons that Neurohacker collected before, like, I guess, you know, stepping back, our process is, you know, first create a hypothesis, right? Try to understand the system, the mechanisms, things that may help restore homeostasis where, you know, it would be prudent or provide a resource that's limited, like, you know, not enough choline in, in the diet for many people. So you'll see a couple brain bioavailable choline sources in quality of mind, like the alpha GPC, 
cognizance and a choline as an example. So, you know, that's step one. Then step two is we build it and try it ourselves, right? That's our kind of initial proof of concept. And then, you know, if at that point it's, you know, seems like the safety and tolerability is fine, then we'll do some type of a pilot study. We'll, we'll make a small batch of it, recruit volunteers, and then have them take a product. And only at only if it passes both safety and tolerability at that stage and seems beneficial based on whatever we're measuring. Typically, again, you know, we'll, we'll often use subjective questionnaires. Would we move a product to market and sell it to the wider public? So because of that, I feel like compared to most supplement companies, we have a bunch of safety and tolerability built in that a lot of other companies would never know about when they're combining multiple things together until after it was already being sold to people. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody were to get their hands on this stuff, the the, the Senolytic, and I'll, I'll put links in the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash Senolytic and take it on a couple of days. About how many months in of taking it two days out of every month would you start to notice stuff? Or is this more one of those things where you're just keeping your fingers crossed is going to help you live a long time? So I think it's going to depend on someone's health. That's what we've seen so far. Like in general, I would say three cycles is what I would recommend taking. We've seen some people in our small studies um, and some customers, some people I know, like friends, family that have taken it that have noticed something within, you know, one, two day dosing cycle, you know, often something that's been kind of a nagging type of annoyance um, issue, you know, musculoskeletal very commonly. So again, the idea with senescent cells is this idea of a threshold effect below a certain threshold in tissues. They may be there. They're not probably doing anything beneficial if they're lingering, but there's not enough equivalent of yellow leaves on the plant yet that the whole plant function is being jeopardized. We would still probably want to prune those away, but we may not be noticing anything because the threshold is low, right? We still want to keep it low, still want to periodically prune away the equivalent of these yellowing leaves in our tissues. If it's already above that threshold in a tissue, then, you know, reducing it below that, often you'll see a big change in some active, some subjective area. And so because of that, there's just not one way that someone would experience it. And, you know, someone like you that does all kinds of things to, you know, stay resilient, stay healthy. I mean, my expectation is you wouldn't notice anything, right? It would be more, you know, just the concept of, oh, I'm going to be a good gardener and prune away some things before they become problematic, where someone that's already having issues with things related to, say, immunosenescence, you know, like immune cells that have been senescent, issues with areas of like musculoskeletal, right? Like they're much more likely to notice something and notice it quickly. Yeah. I was reading some of the reviews on your website about some people felt like their mind got a little bit more clear. Other people felt like they were recovering faster. Somebody else said they had just had less joint aches and pains. I don't know how many cycles these people took, but just the idea of taking it two days out of every month to me, that's, it's pretty simple. It's not super expensive. What is it like 40 bucks for your first box and 70 bucks after. And I, I think we have some kind of a discount code too, but it's not like a super duper expensive supplement like some of these other stacks. The truth is when we first made it, you know, we're, we're you know, kind of on the nerdy end, through hacker collective and, you know, in that biohacker niche. And the truth is we made this thinking, okay, we really want to take it. There's, there's just not something out there that we think would be as useful as the product that we could put out. And so we really honestly weren't expecting it would sell 
particularly robustly, right? We were, you know, making this for, you know, a niche audience is how we thought of it. Maybe some doctors in the longevity space, you know, a subset of biohackers. And to our surprise, within like four weeks, the product completely sold out back last, you know, that was, I think we launched the end of June, 2022. And what we think is that, you know, one, you know, there's not a lot that competes with it, but two, the idea of just having this product that you take two days a month is so easy to integrate for, you know, an, a person that's used to having to juggle taking a whole bunch of things every day. So that that idea of the hit and run dosing, the intermittent nature of it just makes it so easy to do is what we found in our, in our customer response today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like a pretty well formulated product. And again, I, I think we do work with Neurohacker to get you guys some kind of a discount on it that is above and beyond what you'll find on the website. So I will hunt that down and put it in the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash Senolytic. If you're over there shopping around on their website and you got a little bit extra cash burning a hole in your pocket, that quality of mind stuff, the caffeine free version, mostly just because I like to have a cup of coffee or tea that's caffeinated in the morning. And I don't want to over caffeinate myself is another one that I like quite a bit. So that'd be one of their other products that's that's in my pantry. So it's called uh, it was a, it's just called Senolytic, right, Gregory? Yeah, Qualia Senolytic. Qualia Senolytic, All right, cool. Well, I'll, I'll link to all this at bengreenfieldlife.com slash Senolytic, S-E-N-O-L-Y-T-I-C. Over there, you can also leave your comments, your questions, your feedback for me or for Greg, and uh, leave your own thoughts on senescent cells and anything else that you're curious about that we didn't cover in today's show. And in the meantime, Gregory, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing with us uh, all things senescence. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today, Ben. Awesome. All right, folks, I'm Ben Greenfield, along with Gregory Kelly, signing up from bengreenfieldlife.com. Have an amazing week. One thing you should know that's super cool is that on the evening of March 11th in Sedona, I'm hosting a VIP dinner that's catered by me and my family using a bunch of biohacked recipes from my Boundless Cookbook, live music, an intimate Q&A, and an absolutely unforgettable once-in-a-lifetime taste bud entertaining experience where you just come and hang out with me. So we're hosting at our house with only 25 seats available. This thing's going to fill up fast. It's a VIP dinner. Only a select few. We want to keep this small, intimate, but super fun with amazing food. So if you want to get on the VIP dinner as a part of this event that I'm doing down in Sedona, go to bengreenfieldspeaking.com forward slash Sedona dash dinner Ben Greenfield speaking.com forward slash Sedona dash dinner more than ever these days people like you and me need a fresh entertaining well-informed and often outside the box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave so I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today and if you liked it or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be. And just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.